Turn with me in your Bibles to the second chapter of Ephesians. Our particular focus this morning is on verses 8 and 9 in chapter 2, but we will read all of verses 1 through 10, which begins on page 1159 in the navy blue Bibles in your pew and concludes on page 1160. Hear now the words of the Lord. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. And again we say, thanks be to God. So we've been working our way through chapter 2 for a few Sundays now. Today we come to what is probably the most famous part of chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. Paul has been speaking, I told you last Sunday, Paul's been speaking as it were chronologically. He's been talking about a past, what God has done This passage this morning moves us into the present and orients us toward the future, uh, which is verse 10, the the, the present and the future. So verses 1 through 3, you might say, is what it's like not to be a Christian, dead in trespasses and sin. Verses 4 through 7 is what it's like to be a Christian, right? Saved by grace, gifted with faith, uh, robbed of all your boasting, fitted... Oh, sorry, I'm reading ahead. What it's like to be a Christian, made alive, raised up, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And then, verses 8 through 10, is the work of transformation. Saved by grace, gifted with faith, robbed of boasting, and fitted for good works. When preparing this sermon, I did feel a certain weight uh, and responsibility, right? This is the most familiar, most often quoted part of chapter 2. So I really have to feel like this burden. I have to preach a sermon that lifts the roof off the building, right? The irony that I would focus on my own work and strength and brilliance when preaching this particular text is an irony so fantastically stupid that a sort of splendor settles over it. (laughs) And so I bring you today not the greatest sermon that has ever been preached on these words, but three observations that I hope and pray God will use to cause us to rejoice for His great work for us in Christ Jesus. At least three things in your text this morning, and I did not finish the PowerPoints, so uh, you're just going to have to follow me verbally. First, I want you to notice there is an order to what God has done. I've already uh, given you glimpses of that uh, just in introducing the sermon. 
But the order I want to focus on is it has three parts that were given in this text, the start of it anyway, and then the rest of it is in verse 10 next Sunday. But here's the order. Grace first, then faith, then works. Okay? And don't mess up the order. Grace, then faith, then works. That's the first point of the sermon this morning, that there is this order that Paul wants us to see. Uh, Second, that there is a reality that we have to square with in this text, namely that God is the one doing this great work of salvation, not us. So first, there's an order. Second, there's a reality. And then third, there is a result of God's work. The first result we're given, the next one is in verse 10, but the first result we're given is that no one can boast. Okay? So there's an order to what God is doing, faith, uh, grace, faith, works. There is a reality that we have to square with, that God is the one doing this. And there's a result from God's work, namely that no one can boast. So we'll start with there is an order. Okay? Grace and then faith and then works. For by grace you have been saved, verse 8 reads, through faith. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. The order here is really important. Some people mix up the first two. They make it first by faith, then comes grace, then good works. Right? So once I believe hard enough, then God will give me the grace that I need to do the work that He requires. We forget then that faith itself is part of the gift and that grace comes first. Indeed, there's been no small amount of discussion through the years about what... (laughs) Um, about what the this, the word this is referring to. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own. So what, is, what does this mean? What's the antecedent of this? Okay, uh, Is it the grace that is the gift? Is it the faith that is the gift? Is it the salvation you have been saved that is the gift? My own, yeah, my own conviction is that is that the Greek is somewhat unclear about which antecedent it's pointing to because Paul means for it to be because he is in fact talking about the whole thing. This means that the grace is the gift, the faith is the gift, the salvation is the gift. This is the only way, by the way, to make sense of verse 9, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. What would be the total removal of boasting or bragging except to give God credit for all of it. But we have to get the order right. And the proper order is always that grace leads the way. Not because what you do doesn't matter. That's a terrible lie. It's not because your works are worthless. That's another uh, understandable misunderstanding that we will talk about next Sunday. But rather, it is that after the fall, the greatest sin to tempt your heart and my heart is always pride. Which means that God in His mercy means to give you the gift of neutralized pride. Of pride that's been put under His feet where you should be. But I don't want that gift. Well, nobody wants it for heaven's sake. But... Do you know any human beings in your life that could stand to learn a little humility? Right? Oh, you're thinking of them now, aren't you? I have a list of people, yes. yes. Well, give me a minute. Give me a minute, preacher. I'll scribble my name on the bottom of the list right here. Right? Are you on it? Okay. Now, that's sort of the point, isn't it? 
When I say, do you know people in your life who could stand to learn a little humility? You're like, yeah, I do. All right, are you on the list? Oh, yeah, hang on, give me a second. I'll get to the bottom of, write my own name on it. I, I think, I think we, we, we need to learn from this, that humility does not come natural to us. Okay? Humility does not come natural to us. I want to read to you from chapter 11 of our own Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, chapter 11 is on justification. And I've kind of, um, I've kind of uh, you, might say, you might say, updated or modernized the language just a little. And so we're going to walk through it. And I just want you to listen. Again, I, I was going to put it on a slide, but just, just imagine that I did. right? <laughs> but listen to these words. Those whom God effectually calls... He also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins, by accounting and accepting them as righteous, not for anything wrought in them, starting in them, or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness because that would be to mess up the order. But by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on Him and His righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. That last sentence should sound sort of familiar to you. Both our confession and our catechism tend to use this language very frequently, by the way, receiving and resting on Christ. This is what faith is at its root, receiving and resting on Christ. And it might sound like a sort of pedantic fine distinction, but but I would encourage you when we speak of conversion and the kindness of God to draw near to us that we might believe in Him, that is always receiving, not accepting, right? Accepting is what an institution does after you've made the application and then they decide to accept you. You don't decide to accept the king, right? You only can receive his rule. Um, So I I would say rather than accepting Jesus, we speak of receiving Jesus. Um, I think that resting, receiving and resting, is actually a rather brilliant way to describe what it means to receive Christ by grace alone through faith alone. The salvation, our salvation comes to us because we rest in Christ and what He's done for us. Anyone who's ever had insomnia will describe it as a feeling of frustrated helplessness, right? Why can't I just sleep? Why can't I just rest? Sleep comes to me as a gift and I can't work myself into a state of resting, can I? So it is with faith. We find the fuel for our faith in the words and promises of Jesus, which we confess while resting on all that God is for us in Jesus Christ. We do this by grace alone because it is grace, then faith, then works. Christ died on the cross to the glad jeers and taunts of His enemies. Right? May we never think, therefore, that we acted toward Him first. We are the result of the grace of God. So that there's an order to it that's important that we preserve. Next, there is a reality. Look again at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. This is the reality that we have to square with. Paul's been actually trying to emphasize this, I would say, since the very start of the whole letter. God did this, you did not. Right? That's what he's been saying since chapter 1. 
when he's been talking about predestination and adoption. Then he gets to chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. God made you alive, raised you out of the grave, seated you together with Christ. God did this. You did not. That's not to say you have no part in the story. You are the adopted Son of God, beloved heir to a great inheritance. You've been raised up from death. You've been seated in the heavenly places. And as we'll see next week, verse 10, you're the very workmanship of God fitted for good works. But if I had to summarize Paul's intent and focus so far, it would be this is God's work. He did it, you did not. One of the simplest and most significant ways to see the Spirit's work in your own life is to narrate your own life as the ongoing work of God by His Word and Spirit. That was the example of uh, Thomas Shepard last Sunday, right? And then I saw, and then I saw, and then I, I faced this affliction, this hardship, this trouble, this difficulty, and then I saw this is what God was doing in me you know, with that affliction or trouble or whatever. Shepard knew how to narrate his life as the ongoing work of God, even when he didn't understand the total picture. He's like grabbing hold of one of the puzzle pieces as best I understand it. He would locate a small bit of what he could understand and confess that. So here's a rather uncontroversial statement for you. If you are a Christian, knowing Jesus Christ is the single most significant thing about your life and who you are. If, that, if, if it wasn't true of you, if you didn't know Jesus, everything about your life would be different. So it is remarkable to consider that if you are a Christian, and if you take Paul's point seriously here, right, the, the God did this, you did not, it means that the most significant thing about you is something that's not you. <laughs> it's something that God has done. That you did not do. Now we might confess that easily enough, but I think if we are honest, brothers and sisters, we admit that we struggle to hold this up as a way of understanding all of life after our conversion. Or all of life after we face some hardship for the first time in our life. That was to younger people, obviously. What, what I mean is that all of us are and should be right, quite happy to credit God with our salvation. That's not, there's no debate there. But I do think we then struggle to credit God with our affliction, with our trouble, with our struggle, with our disappointment. We struggle to credit God with uh, the difficulties that we face or the failures that we've made. What do I mean by that? Well, many times, and I want you to kind of walk, walk through this with me uh, as, as we understand it together because it's something I think I'm still growing in my own understanding on. There's a, there's a difference, at least in the way we speak, between sin and failure. A sin, we know how to identify it, right? We know how to identify sin. A sin is lack of conformity to God's law or a violation of God's law. That's what a sin is. If I hate my brother, if I have a lustful thought, if I nurse a grudge, if I get angry that God's blessed my neighbor more than he's blessed me, those are sins that God calls sins. I know what to do with those. I take them to the cross. I confess them. I hear of my forgiveness in Jesus Christ. I know what to do with my sins. But what about my failures? And I'm using that word in a very specific way. What about the things that, as best I can tell, don't contain any obvious sin? They were just mistakes and bad calls. I should not have passed up that job offer. I should not have quit that other job. 
I should not have packed up and moved. I should not have married that person. Oof. I should not have bought that house. Whatever it is, right? So these things don't feel like sins. They feel like bad judgment calls, failures of wisdom. Now, again, I know what to do with my sins. I bring those to the cross. Jesus forgives them. But what about my failures, my mistakes, my bad judgment calls, the things that reveal that I was not enough for whatever I was facing? Things that have really cost me or maybe my family. I can't... I feel like I can't repent of those, so I just have to bear them every day. So what would... Let, let me, as it were, offer a little bit of pastoral counsel for that because I think it's pretty common. I would say first... <laughs> this is not going to sound like helpful counsel at first. But first, you know, there's no sin in there. It's just about, Well, there might be sin in there. Uh, foolishness is sinful, right? That might be the whole point of the book of Proverbs. So you can still repent of that wherever you find it. Failure to love neighbor is sinful. Many of our failures that we sometimes feel are like virtue neutral are failures to love God and neighbor well, at least consider it. But second, if you really are stuck with a failure that is relatively free of sin, as best you can tell, I'm not asking you to go into crazy introspective mode, but as best you can tell, it's a failure, a costly failure even, but relatively free of sin. So you can't really confess it or repent of it. It just hangs over your head, beating you to the ground every day, reminding you what a failure you are. What you have to do is lift up your head and remember that by grace you have been saved and God did it and God's been at work ever since then. And when you tell your story, you must remember to narrate it as an account of what God is doing that you might be more like Jesus Christ. Now God delights to turn failures into proofs of His own care and frankly, genius. Right? That's what the cross was. Seeming failure. Seeming total defeat, humiliation. One man out of 12 has turned into a traitor and killed himself. The other 11 are left having to reckon with the proposition that they wasted the last three years of their lives. God delights to specialize in the redemption of total failures. Okay. So we started by observing that there is an order Next, that there is a reality, right? That God is the one that has done this. We entrust all of our salvation to God, but also the way we narrate our life, we entrust that to God. This is the story that God is writing and telling. And then third, there is a result to all this. Verse 9, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Maybe a better way for that third one Third point to be titled is there is not a there's a not result, right? Not as a result of work so that no one may boast. The result of this great work of God, by grace you have been saved through faith, is that boasting is removed from the whole, if you like, from the whole equation of the Christian life. As it turns out, boasting is a really important concept in the Bible. Paul talks about it in a lot of different places. It seems to be something that comes up pretty frequently. Uh, even in the Old Testament, uh, Jeremiah 9, listen to these words, Jeremiah 9, uh, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, 
boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So here, there in Jeremiah 9, God is committed to the removal of boasting, right? Now, He doesn't deny that the wise man has wisdom, that the mighty man has might, that the rich man has riches. He says, if you want to boast in anything, don't boast in those things. Boast in that you know Me. And maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, but Ephesians 2, I, <laughs> I thought you said knowing God, that He knows Me, was all of grace. Yes. Yes, it is. And if you look at the text, He says, let him boast that he understands and knows me. And then he goes on to describe what kind of God this is, right? He says that he understands and knows me, that I'm the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth, and so on. He doesn't go on to describe how brilliant Israel is for figuring all that out. If you want to say, though, but it still sounds like he's inviting boasting, I will say, fair enough. That which is less clear in the old becomes clearer in the new. Romans chapter 3, verse 11, no one understands. No one seeks for God. This is our spiritual condition, right? We're not seekers. We are not the ones who understand. And if no one understands, read the Jeremiah text through that lens. If no one understands, boast in your understanding about the God who has revealed Himself to you. John chapter 6, verse 44 Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Again, we're not seekers except that the Father draws us in. There's no such thing as a seeker because left to ourselves, we want nothing to do with God. That's why grace must come before faith. Acts 16, speaking of Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord is the one who opens hearts. Now, as I've said before, this confuses us. Right? If God is the one who opens my heart to believe, then am I just a robot? Right? We've talked about this before in the past. I want to address it here again. The reason why this is a perpetual struggle for us is because, at least one reason, is because of our historical moment where we believe there's no greater reality beyond our existential perception of reality. Here's what I mean. If I am hurt, right? if I'm emotionally wounded, say, it is because someone else has sinned against me. Right? Well, how do you know that? Well, because I'm hurt. That's how I know someone has sinned, right? Because I hurt. If I'm angry, it's because someone has sinned. I've been wronged. Why? Well, how do you know? Because I'm angry. What I feel in our cultural moment, is the way that I explain what is really happening. So if you're telling me that God moves first, that God must act first, that God must give grace first, if I don't feel or notice that, it's hard for me to acknowledge that that is what's happening. You see? We've been catechized to think my feeling and perception is how I define what's really going on. So if I don't know that God is the one acting on me first, if I don't feel that, see that, realize that, then it's hard for me to acknowledge that that's what's really going on. The way I think of it, if I come to God, name my sin, repent of my sin, and turn to Christ, 
I'm certainly the one doing that, right? Yes. Yes, you are. You are doing so by His grace. But I didn't notice that. I, mean, I, wasn't, I wasn't aware, right? When God breathed new life into me, raised me up from the dead, I didn't have an existential sensation that I was suddenly just walking on air of, of, of no choice of my own. All I really noticed is that I hated my sin. All I really noticed is that I cried out to God for mercy. It really felt like I was the one doing that. You were, and it was all real. But how could it be real if I wasn't aware of all that God was doing before and during? Because, and follow me closely here, you are not God. Right? That's, that's the big profound revelation. That's why you missed it. You are not God. And so, the good news that I'm closing with this morning is that God is committed to some things as He works in and through you for the sake of His Son and for your salvation, that as He continues to be at work that you may or may not be aware of, right? The text says, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. What this means, if boasting is removed, if God is working so that no one may boast, all that can be left then so like you, you remove boasting and what's the dust that's left underneath it is thankful acknowledgement of God's mercy. Right? If I can't boast, but I have to talk about what God has done, the only way to talk about it then is thankful acknowledgement of His mercy. So I have at least two applications I want you to think about this week that I'm going to close with this morning. First application, this means that God is far more committed to your humility than you are. God carefully cultivates humility in His people. And this careful cultivation of His church throughout the centuries is His great work to grow, you might say, to grow a humble people. Now that is troubling to a lot of people because they might say, well, I was, you know, part of a church for a while, and it didn't exactly seem like a great company of humble people, right? Well, yeah, there is still a lot of pride in our midst. I won't lie to you about that. In one sense, though, that shouldn't surprise us. Here's why. Jesus told us, right, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, it is the sick. And ordinarily, ordinarily, Christ does not rid us of our sinful habits and proclivities overnight. He works them out of us over the long arc and course of life. So listen, here's what I'm saying. If by the design of our founder and savior, our religion reaches out to the worst of the worst and promises their transformation over the long arc, it should not surprise us that we have a few long-term projects on our hands. I will take that one step further. God means to refine and perfect hypocrites in the company of recovering hypocrites. That doesn't mean that we don't deal with sin. We deal with sin directly and clearly. That's called church discipline. And by the way, 95% plus of all church discipline is my brother, my sister, there's indwelling sin in your heart and we should talk about it. That's 95%. Plus of all church discipline. We tend to think of church discipline as only like you are in big gigantic trouble and you're probably getting kicked out. 
In reality, most church discipline is there is sin in your life. We need to talk about it. But much of church life together is walking out and working out this reality that God is far more committed to my humility than I am. Second application. If God is that committed to removing boasting from our stories and from the stories we tell about like, our own life and what God has done, we should be committed to that as well. What do I mean? I mean, you know, maybe this afternoon and for the next couple of days, go boasting hunting in your own heart. Ask yourself, where am I prone to brag, to boast? Or, here's one that we don't consider enough, to be extremely self-defensive. Because the way this tends to take shape for Christians, just what I've noticed, we tend to avoid saying, I'm really good at this, right? Because that sounds like bragging. We, we don't, we're careful kind of not to talk that way. Meanwhile, what we're not noticing about ourselves is that we're cultivating self-defensiveness for a whole lot of things. Which is kind of funny because there's actually, <laughs> there's actually no sin in saying that you are good at something. There are places, brothers and sisters, where God has gifted you and made you good at some stuff. And, uh, or, or where you've cultivated some skill. And acknowledging that is not boasting. Though it can be hard to tell the difference. But pretending you're not good at something when you are is not humility. Right? That's just lying. Most of us need some work here. Just whether culturally or whatever else. Most of us need some work here. Because we've been catechized to believe that we can't acknowledge our own usefulness or skillfulness because that's pride or boasting. No, it's not. Say, now, saying you're better than everyone in the room, that's probably boasting. Uh, but acknowledging competence is not boasting. It is not the way in which most of us commit the sin of boasting. For most of us, our boasting hides behind our self-defensive blaming. We boast when we hang the majority of the problems in our life around the neck of another sinner. Right? We don't call it boasting. That's what we're doing, right? We're saying the problem's not here with, with well-sanctified me, right? The problem is there with poorly sanctified you, okay? For most of us, boasting hides behind our blaming. I'm not saying that, you know, you haven't been sinned against in your life. Of course you have. Of course you have. I'm not saying that being sinned against doesn't have real say, consequences and may lead to real struggle in your heart. Of course it will. But if you want to find and slay the dragon of boasting in your own heart, you have to see your own sin as the biggest dragon you can slay. Let me put it to you as a question. What stands between you and what you want? Right? Either who you want to be, because I'm assuming that most of us are unhappy with who we are today, either who you want to be or where you want to be in life, what stands between you and that? What stands between you and a happy, harmonious marriage? What stands between you and godly productivity in your job? We're talking about that on Wednesday nights. 
What stands between you? Here's one for, for, for children, right? Children and teenagers. What stands between you and honoring your mother and father? What stands between you and daily humble gladness and thankfulness? How often do your narratives of frustration or difficulty focus mainly on the sins of others around you? With your own sin being a footnote that you sort of mumble about, right? It's like the real problem is their sin and their trouble and their difficulty and the ways they've disappointed me and the ways they've failed and the ways that they are rude or cruel or sinful and I'm a sinner too, right? We sort of mumble that at the end and I'm also a sinner too, right? It's easy for us to get good at mumbling about our own sins and talking plainly about others, right? When you're asked about other sins, it's like, I'm so glad you asked. I have a list. Would you like it alphabetically or chronologically? God is more committed to your humility than you are. And it may be, or excuse me, and may it be that when your feet hit the floor in the morning, you use your first breath of the day to confess, Oh Lord, the biggest threat to my marriage is my sin. The biggest obstacle to joy in my work is my ingratitude and grumbling. The biggest threat to my faith is my refusal to believe that you are the one writing this story with purposes that are good. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Therefore, receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone, freely offered to you today in the gospel. In the name of Jesus, I couldn't have put it better. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for uh, the work that you're doing in and through us. We thank you for the grace and the glory of salvation given to us freely in Jesus Christ, and that we cannot earn it, we do not deserve it, And then at the end of the day, what it does is it takes away our boasting. Indeed, so that no one may boast, Lord. We pray that you would strengthen us for your service and that you would feed us here at your table all to the glory of our Lord Jesus who has done this. We ask it in his name. Amen.